open at the beginning of your lecture. Yes, the answer would be open at the beginning of your lecture. Okay, let's do that. It's a trick. Here, there we go. From my secret admirer. Wow, I got something from a secret. I've never had a secret admirer. That's amazing. Wow. Too bad it's a woman. <laughs> of course, I'm married, so what does that matter? <laughs> it's Donnie. That's a good, that's a good picture. Woo! <laughs> that is great! Oh my goodness! Oh, my husband's gonna be so thrilled! <laughs> my sisters got me a Donnie doll because my parents would never buy me one, and my husband didn't, wasn't real thrilled about that. Like, what are you gonna do with that doll? Oh my gosh, it's all Donnie! It's like Donnie everywhere! Oh my goodness, it's Marie! I don't have Marie! No, I have Marie! Look at that! Donnie, now I have a Donnie again. Wow! Where do you even find Donnie and Marie dolls? Oh, look at this. This is so 70s. Look at that. He's got purple socks. Okay, raise your hand if you know about the purple socks. Nobody. No one. Okay, one person going, shoot, do I really have to admit this? Okay, two. Yeah, Donnie wore purple socks every day for years. <clears throat> And I am really excited to have this. This is his new album, his 60th album. Golly gee, we're not recording this, are we? Because <laughs> y'all are about to walk out and going, this is not a Bible teacher. This could not be a Bible teacher. If she knows how many albums the man has put out, that is just sad. Oh my goodness. <laughs> working on Valentine's Day. I haven't even asked because he's worked every Valentine's Day for years. So this is just, this is the best Valentine's thing I could ever get. Oh my goodness. This is fabulous. <clears throat> That's amazing. Oh wow. Okay. I don't even want to put these guys away, but I better because everybody will be looking at them the whole time. Oh, that is so funny. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That just, that made my day. Oh, this is great. <laughs> the beginning of my lecture. How do I teach now? Wow. Oh, thank you. You guys, you're amazing. Whoever did that, whoever was a, responsible for that, thank you. That's fabulous. Oh, wow. Nope, that's not tall enough. Are we, is, is that whole thing recorded? Oh, my goodness. Sorry, everyone out there in internet land. I just got a Donnie Palooza. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, do you have any questions? N want to know anything about Donnie? What do you, it, it, <laughs> his birthday, how many siblings? <laughs> no questions, really, seriously, no questions. Okay. 
How many siblings? Verl, Tom, Alan, Wayne, Merrill, Jay, Donnie, Marie, Jimmy. There are nine kids all together, so he has eight siblings. One, one sister. And yeah, and the oldest two are, uh, did not perform because they're partially deaf, both, both of them. Yes. Yeah, and it does sound like he couldn't, like he wasn't powerful enough to do that. Um, I will address that. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that he was incapable of it. Um, but I will, I will talk about that. Any other questions? That's a, that was something that's bothered me for a long time, like, you know, before this study. And um, I was very, very pleased to read what I read. Makes sense. Will I address who bowed down to Jesus? Oh, I won't address that. Did I ask that? No, okay. Um, well, actually, I can't say I won't address that. I will address what was happening when the man, while he was still possessed by demons, fell prostrate, fell face first in front of Jesus. I will address what was going on there. So if, if, if in doing that, I don't answer your question, then let's talk afterward, okay? Anybody else? Okay, great questions. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for, thank you so much for these ladies. Uh, Father, I just love them, and, um, and I know they love me, and I appreciate that, Father, and, and the, all of that love is, is ultimately from you, for you are love. Um, we thank you and we praise you. Speak to us this morning, Father. Help us to see what you want us to see and to hear what you want us to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, we're going to start by looking back just a little bit, because the last story we went through last week is actually the first story of a unit that, that spans from uh, chapter 4 to the beginning of uh, first six and a half verses of chapter 6. Uh, and we'll go through the rest of that unit. So I, instead of kind of disconnecting it from that unit, I wanted to, to mention it. So the last thing we talked about last week was the storm on the lake, when Jesus calmed the storm, which begins in Mark 4.35. And then from there until... Uh, Mark 6, 6a, as they call it, the first part of Mark 6, 6, is going to be this unit of stories of Jesus' ministry around the Sea of Galilee. He's going to go as far as Nazareth, but in Galilee and most, mostly along the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus and the disciples on this trip where Jesus stor calms the sea, they are on their voyage across the sea to the eastern shore. And then we'll, where we'll read the story of of the demoniac, as the theologians call him, the man who was uh, filled with demons, was possessed by demons. And then in 521, at the end of that story, he's going to go back uh, to Capernaum. Um, and then from there until 6-6, he's going to be in and around Galilee and mostly around the lake, ministering uh, to people. So you see here, and I just accidentally discovered this last week. Look what I have here. I have a pointer. Hey, where'd it go? Now it's not doing it. Oh, that makes me sad. It's not even lighting up. Oh, wait, that's because I'm holding it backwards. Look, there it is. Okay, so, uh, so he's around this area um, of, 
Capernaum and, and around the scene. He is going to venture as far as Nazareth down here, but still in Galilee. Uh, and he goes from um, somewhere around here across the sea to Gergesa. And we'll talk about that in a minute too. In these stories, Jesus shows that he can still storms. He can still all kinds of storms because he possesses power to still both outward storms that threaten life as well as inward storms of torment and grief that threaten our souls. And we find in these stories also that Jesus is sovereign. He is sovereign over nature, over demons, over illness, and even over death. Who is this guy that he is all of that? And we begin with this story of Legion, um, the, the man that was uh, surrounded by demons and, uh, or possessed by many demons. And um, you see here, so this place, we're going to talk about it in just a minute, uh, is probably where Jesus was uh, in Gergesa. We'll talk about why that is. Um, it's, it's complicated. It says in the region of the Gerasenes, uh, we'll read about that in a second, but it's complicated because the ancient manuscripts don't agree on the pl- name of the place. Is it a region? Is it a city? The city where some people, a couple of cities where some people have located it, are like, one of them's like 37 miles from the lake, you know, and pigs don't fly and they don't run 37 miles. So, um, so what makes the most sense is that in the region of the Gerasenes, uh, would be this town, which is now called Gorsi or Gersi, and it's uh, in the territory of, uh, of the Gerasenes or of Garaza, which would be in the region of the Gerasenes. And on this uh, part of the lake, oops, nope, go back. Uh, on this part of the lake, you can see that promontory. There is a cliff that hangs out over the lake and drops uh, directly into the lake. Probably exactly uh, where this story took place. So Jesus is now on the eastern part of the lake. He is most likely among Gentiles. And that is important for a number of reasons. At the very least, he is among really, really non-religious Jews uh, if he's not among Gentiles. Because an Orthodox Jew never becomes a pig herder. That's just not a category of job that's open to an Orthodox Jew. So uh, I, I believe he is here among Gentiles, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. So here begins his account, encounter with this man with the demons. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones." Dr. James Edwards calls this one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. And it is. Consider this man's plight. He has been chained hand and foot. He has 
no relationships with anyone. His relationship, his most significant relationship is with dead people. He, he has uh, been forced to live among the tombs. He probably wishes he himself was dead. And the wording that Mark uses is more fitting of a wild animal than it is of a human being. When it says that nobody was able to subdue him, that literally is the word that they use saying no one is able to tame this wild animal. He is unbreakable. He is untamable. Even the language is, is inhuman about him. Uh, and this man is perpetually uncre- unclean. He is likely a Gentile. But even if he is not, he is perpetually unclean. The dead were unclean. To be among, to live among, to have anything to do with death or the place of the dead was unclean. And that was his home. The Gentiles were unclean, and he is likely a Gentile. Pigs and caring for pigs were unclean, and he lived among them. Jesus doesn't care about any of that. Uh, This is what what Dr. Garland says. He says, thus Jesus meets an unclean spirit living, a man with an unclean spirit living among unclean tombs surrounded by people employed in unclean occupations, all in unclean Gentile territory. Jesus is a Jew. And it does not bother him. In fact, he intentionally enters into this man and to these people's uncleanness. And he is not defiled by it. He undefiles. He cleanses that that which he touches. Ladies, Jesus has entered our uncleanness as well. And he has cleaned it and forgiven it. How amazing is that? So Jesus only cares about this man's life and his soul, and so he enters into his uncleanness. And then this man comes after him. He says, when he, the demoniac, saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. That is too soft in the Greek to say that he ran to Jesus. He actually ran at Jesus. He, he lunged or tried to lunge at Jesus, but he ended up prostrate before him. Whether the demons could get any farther, we don't know, but, but he ended up on his face before Jesus. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me, for Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. So this man comes, attempts to lunge at Jesus, comes racing at him. Adam ends up on his face. And these were feisty demons um, that were inside this man. They try to wheel and deal with Jesus' equals. 
They could not. They try evasive tactics with Jesus. They don't work. The spirits know what others have refused to see. Jesus is the son of the most high God. But knowledge about Jesus, ladies, is not the same thing as faith in Jesus. And so with the word, they must obey. They may know about Jesus, but they are forced to obey him. And with a word, the man is cleansed because Jesus' word is deed. And when Jesus asks him his name, he says his name is Legion, or the demons say their name is Legion for there are many. A legion was a detachment of Roman soldiers, about 6,000 strong. But the point here is not to give us a number. How many were there? One, one theologian answered that by saying, enough to drive 2,000 swine crazy uh, it was the number. It's not trying to give us a number. It's just trying to convey that there were many demons living inside of him. And so Jesus, uh, by, at the request of the demons, sends them into the pigs, and the pigs run crazy into the lake. Now there is a question here that people ask, and that is, is it really fair? What about the pigs? Is it really fair to drown? Now i got to tell you, pigs for Jews, honestly, if I said to you, he sent them into a bunch of venomous snakes, and they ran, yeah, and they slithered off the edge of the, and were drowned. Would you all be concerned about the snakes? No. That's just like 2,000 fewer snakes in the world. I am good with that. But the pigs are cuter. If he would have said little lambs, there'd probably be an uproar. But that is not, that's not the point. The PETA may hate it, and there are a lot of people that say, look, that ruined the livelihood of the swine herders. Isn't there something wrong with that? Others recoil at this idea of, of these swine, of these pigs losing their life. But first of all, notice that Jesus did not do that. The demons caused them to go over the cliff. But frankly, I find it comforting that we have a God that loves us that much. We have a Savior who sees the life and soul of one man as more important than a herd of animals and as more important as the life, than the livelihood of those who keep them. He values us that much. Um, and I find that comforting. So now he has an encounter with the townspeople who you would think would be like, whoa, dude, who is this guy? But they're not. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed, chained foot and hand, screaming out and cutting himself uh, by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. So this great thing happens, but that does not lead to faith for most of the people. They are terrified, and they ask Jesus to leave? You'd think you would want this guy to help you, but no, they ask Jesus to leave. Dr. Garland says they are more comfortable 
with the malevolent forces that take captive human beings and destroy animals than they are with the one who can expel them. They can cope with the odd demon-possessed wild man who terrorizes the neighbor, neighborhood with random acts of violence, but they want to keep someone with Jesus' power at lake's, lake's length on the other side of the sea. They must consider Jesus more dangerous and worrisome than the demons. Uh, and they do. They're afraid of him. So the people are more terrified of Jesus than they were of the demon-possessed man who is now sitting at Jesus' feet in the position of a disciple, um, being with Jesus and learning from him. And all he wants to do is be with Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? But then there's this surprise. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. So here's this man who just wants to be with Jesus, and Jesus says no. No. Why would Jesus say no to this man? Well, most likely, it's because Jesus understands that his mission is still primarily to the Jews, to his own people, and to have a Gentile disciple with him um, at this point would have been, to say the least, a stumbling block for that mission. A number of years later, Paul had Timothy circumcised in order to take him on a mission with him so that he would not be a stumbling block. At this point, at the beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry, uh, which is what all of Mark is about, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, it would have uh, not been good for the mission. Further, this man can spread the word about Jesus among the Gentiles. In fact, he's the only one who can because Jesus has been banished from the area. So notice that for the first time, Jesus does not tell this man to be silent. He tells him, go. Tell your family, tell your friends what has happened. And he does this in order to leave a witness in the area uh, because Jesus has been asked to leave. And this former demoniac becomes the first Gentile missionary for Christ. In fact, Dr. Edwards says this, the response to Jesus is essentially no different from the Jewish response in Galilee, the response of everyone but the demoniac. But human response alone, even hardness of heart, is not the final word. Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you, Jesus commands. Their banishment of Jesus does not rid them of Jesus, for Jesus is present in the message of the gospel proclaimed by his followers. In the Gospel of Mark, the healed demoniac becomes the first missionary preacher sent out by Jesus. Remarkably, he is a Gentile sent to Gentiles. Note also in these verses, and I didn't write this on your notes, the hidden Christology here. Jesus tells the man, tell your family what the Lord has done for you. 
And the man tells his family what the Lord has done for them. Is the Lord, is that God? Is that Jesus? The answer is yes, it is. It's both of them because Jesus is God incarnate. Um, so uh, then we have this story of the woman, the hemorrhaging woman, um, and I, I, I wanted to mention this, I'm sorry. We learn in this story, in fact, we learn in all of Mark that there is no territory, literal or figurative, that God's kingdom does not intend to invade with the love and the healing that can only be found in Jesus Christ, whether it's on the sea or on land, whether it's an inward storm or an outward storm. God's kingdom has come uh, to change us and to change the world. So then we have this story, this, another sandwich, the story of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And, and the story of the woman who has been bleeding interrupts the story about Jairus. So it becomes the middle story, and it is the key to understanding the whole unit. Now, the story tells us that Jairus is a synagogue ruler, and he comes up and, and, and begs Jesus to heal his daughter, who is at death's door, who is dying. A synagogue ruler isn't exactly what we might think of. In our parlance, he would be an executive pastor. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a teaching pastor. He, he didn't teach, at least not regularly. In fact, in synagogues, it would have been primarily um, um, lay people who did, filled that role. He kind of was in charge of the buildings and grounds. Uh, he was uh, in charge of... Um, of the upkeep of the synagogue. He was in charge of making sure the teaching was orthodox. He was in charge of figuring out who was going to teach. Uh, so the schedule of teaching uh, in the synagogue. And he too falls prostrate before Jesus, begging Jesus to heal his daughter who is deathly ill. And as any parent in here could imagine, he is desperate for her to be healed. Jesus, whatever his plan might have been that day, proves himself once again to be interruptible. That is a word for me. Because sometimes, I mean, I'm just, I, my life is the way I teach. It's like a locomotive. It's like what, um, oh shoot, Liz Curtis Higgs says. She says she's like the steamroller that comes into the room and goes all over the room and then looks around and goes, where'd all the flat people come from? And, and that is a word for me. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, he was interruptible. He didn't say, I'm sorry, I have this thing to do. I can't help you. I say that all the time to my kids, man. Mommy's studying. Someday, if I find it, I'll read to you the, the little note that Katie wrote to my ladies when I was teaching at night that I, I, she wanted me to play with her or something. And I said, why don't you go write a story? Here's how the story began. There once was a woman who all she did was Bible study. That wasn't convicting at all. Wow, yeah. We still talk about that. He was interruptible, and he goes with Jairus, except the crowd stops him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. 
When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you. The disciples are like, dude, who touched you? Like, 1,500 people have touched you. What do you mean? Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. That's another word for us. When we come to Jesus, tell him the whole, he already knows it. Tell him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I read that whole story, even though we're a little short on time, because that is an important story for us to hear. There's this large crowd, and, and it, again, the crowd proves to be an impediment to Jesus' ministry. Uh, again, in, we see that in Mark. And her condition, what was her condition? Ladies, we're all women. <laughs> Let's be real. The poor woman had been menstruating straight for 12 years. For 12 years. Seriously, you're going to think twice before complaining again, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. And she had had this for 12 years. She, had, she too, just like Jairus, was desperate. She and anyone near her was perpetually unclean. Because when a woman was menstruating, she was unclean. So anyone for 12 years who touched her was unclean. Anyone who sat on the same chair as she sat on was unclean. Anyone who slept in the same bed as her was unclean. And that person was unclean until he or she went through purification rituals. It had an impact on every area of her life. Physically, I don't even need to try and explain that one to you. Socially, she was probably divorced. We're going to learn uh, in coming weeks that divorce was not difficult for a man to receive. And if your wife was bleeding for 12 years, all you had to do is write up a certificate of divorce and say, I divorce you. Psychologically, why? Why am I going through this? Financially, we we're told she spent her life savings trying to fix this. And spiritually, God, what are you doing to me? And in this culture, it would have been a very shameful thing for her to have. And she, could have been, she would have been seen as one who was being punished by God. Even the language of, this, um, of what he is saying is filled with, oh, why am I not there? Um, is filled with a language of desperation. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12... No, that's not what I wanted. Where is it? Shoot. Okay. That's interesting. Here, this is it. In a dramatic volley of Greek participles, verse 26 grafts the woman's condition precipitously. Having a blood flow, having suffered from many doctors, having exhausted all her wealth, having not improved but having gotten worse. The same verse is equally emphatic and categorical. She suffered much from many physicians, exhausted all her resources, and gained nothing. Clearly, the woman's prospects 
are no better than the dying girls. So this is a desperate situation that this woman is in. Uh, but her 12 years of frustration and shame are resolved in a momentary touch of Jesus Christ. And all these years later, it is still true, isn't it, that Jesus changes lives. Now, Jesus knows what has happened and calls her out. This woman only wants anonymity because what she's doing is against the law, and she knows it going to try to touch someone who will make him unclean. And so she just wants anonymity. Why does Jesus call this woman out? He's not upset at her. He just wants to give her more than a cure. See, the woman wants a cure. She wants a something from Jesus. Jesus wants a personal encounter with the woman. He wants to give her a someone himself. That's discipleship, being with Jesus, being known by him, and following him. This woman's faith is truly compelling. She'll stop at nothing to get to Jesus. Knowing that what she's doing is illegal, she still pursues Jesus, which makes me wonder, what am I willing to do? to get to Jesus? Am I pursuing him as doggedly as this woman? And the answer honestly is, I'm not. I'm not, and that convicts me. Such faith as hers is healing faith. Mark wants to make sure that we don't miss that. Woman, your faith has healed you. So then we go back to Jairus, and even while Jesus is speaking, some people from his house come up and say, it's too late. Or is it? And they say, don't bother the teacher anymore. What's implied in that when they say, don't bother the teacher anymore? Basically what they're saying is, look, this guy may be able to heal. He can't raise the dead. That's above his pay grade, obviously. He's just a teacher after all. But Jesus turns to Jairus and says, just believe. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Have faith, or better, keep having faith, is what it literally says. For Jairus had exhibited his faith in approaching Jesus in the first place. So Jairus again exhibits his faith by following Jesus, literally, to his own house. And with with a word, little girl, get up. That which was dead is resurrected, proving that even death is not beyond the power of Jesus Christ. Who is this guy? These stories, the way we're supposed to understand these stories and the, the story of the woman being in the middle is that they are a lesson of faith. They, these are two completely different people. A wealthy, powerful, connected man and a poor shameful, disconnected, literally, woman who isn't even named. They have only one thing in common. Jesus is their only hope. Whether we realize it or not, that is just as true of us.
So we have here an example of faith on the heels of telling the woman, woman, your faith has saved you. Jesus turns to Jairus and says, keep having faith. So this nameless indigent woman becomes a model of faith for the wealthy Jairus. And both of them are models for us. Ladies, this is a faith that trusts Jesus despite everything to the contrary. Even when things seem hopeless, this faith endures. It is a faith that knows no limits, not even death. It is a faith that knows that Jesus is enough, no matter the circumstances. And it is a faith that acts, first and foremost, in getting to and following Jesus. Ladies, that's the kind of faith I want to have, that active kind of faith. Who is this guy? Well, now we move on to um, the first part of chapter 6. And Jesus leaves and he goes to his hometown. And he's not particularly well received. They, they say of him, where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Others had seen the miracles of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and been amazed. These people answer the question, who is this guy, by saying, who does this guy think he is? Isn't he just Mary's son? Isn't he just a carpenter? Dude hasn't even ever followed a rabbi which in their world would be like not having a college degree and trying to become a pastor without a college degree. Who does this guy think he is? Others were amazed at Jesus' teaching and miracles. In Nazareth, Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. And he he does not perform very many miracles. Why? It's not because he couldn't, and it's not because... He refused. Their lack of faith. If, if you had faith and if you ha- didn't have faith in Jesus, would you bring your sick child to him? No. They didn't come. They didn't believe. And so they didn't ask. So they didn't receive. Dr. Edwards says this. The people of Nazareth see only a carpenter, only a son of Mary, only another one of the village children who has grown up and returned for a visit. If only God were less ordinary and more unique, they would believe. The servant image of the Son is too prosaic to garner credulity. God has identified too closely with the world for the world to behold him, too closely with the town of Nazareth for it to recognize in Jesus, the Son of God. Humanity wants something more than what God gives. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God who condescends to us in only a carpenter, the son of Mary. That's beautiful. Well, then, Jesus, again, we have another sandwich where Jesus, the first part of the story is Jesus sending the disciples out to minister and to preach and to heal 
and, and to drive out demons. And it is interrupted by this story of John the Baptist and the death of John the Baptist. Um, these are two seemingly completely unrelated stories. How do you get from one to the other? Uh, but Mark intentionally links them together. Because at the time of this sending out of the disciples, John was already dead. You have a flashback to his death. So why would he link these together? Well, let's talk first about in verses 6b through 13, the sending out to preach, to heal, and to drive out demons. And he gives them weird instructions. Like, what's that all about? Uh, They're to go by twos. Well, there are two purposes for that, at least. One is that, that the required number of witnesses to witness anything was two. So they had the required number of witnesses in Judaism. And they also had protection and company and, and those sorts of things. But then what about the gear? He only tells them to take a few things. Uh, no bread, no bag, no money, no belt. Just, just sandals um, and a staff. And what you're wearing on your back. That's it. What's that all about? Well, it's reminiscent of Moses and the Exodus. And what Jesus is indicating here is that something new and important is beginning with this first foray into the world by the disciples. It is foundational. It is revelatory. The disciples are to call Israel back to faith, much as Moses did. And then what they're not to take, the bread, the money, the extra shirt, they need to trust God completely on this journey. And then he tells them, if someone doesn't accept you, shake off the dust from your shoes. Now, that was common for Jews. They would always shake off the dust from their shoes symbolically when re-entering Israel from Gentile territory. But Jesus is telling them to do this to Jews who do not accept them uh, or receive them. So that's tantamount to saying these Jews are heathens. They are as the Gentiles which is another indication that this good news isn't just good news for Jews. It is good news for Gentiles as well. Unbelievers, whether Jew or Gentile, will be cut off from God's salvation. But the intention, the purpose, is not to to damn them, but to encourage repentance. So then it's interspersed with this story of John the Baptist. And it's, it's a hint at the obvious success of the uh, disciples' mission, because Herod gets word about Jesus and what's going on with Jesus and his disciples, and he's worried about it. And he wonders, is John back? Has John, like, raised from the dead and he's back to torment me? Well, if that's true, Herod's in big trouble. And we find out why in a flashback. Because Herod had beheaded John on the whim of his evil, conniving wife and his hussy of a stepdaughter. Because just exactly what kind of dance pleases a bunch of drunken men, you can imagine. So John was beheaded for boldly speaking the truth to Herod. Herod, your marriage is a sin. Which angered, but actually fascinated Herod at the same time. But it made his wife Herodias murderously furious. So then the apostles return. And they tell Jesus everything. They're probably very excited. We cast out demons. Who knew we could do that? You know, they're excited about it. Um, And so then what is the point of this 
this interlacing of stories. The point is, Mark is telling us, there is a cost to discipleship. By the way, if you don't read another book, uh, Christian nonfiction book, read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. Um, Either that or C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. But those are my two very favorite books. There is a cost to discipleship, and John was the forerunner of Jesus, both in ministry and in suffering. And if the disciples are going to follow Jesus, they need to understand that it is a way of suffering. And they will suffer. And and Mark is cluing us into what Jesus will tell them in chapter 8. If anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross daily and deny himself to follow me. And they will learn that lesson because they will give their lives for their faith. So here are these disciples, and they're taking God's truth to the world. I'm going to paraphrase Chuck Colson, who in Loving God, I'm pretty sure it's in Loving God, said that nowhere does the Bible tell people to go to church, but everywhere it tells the church to take the message and the love of Jesus Christ to the world. The disciples were sent into the world by Jesus. They were not ready. They were not qualified. It reminds me of this scene in um, College Road Trip, which is odd, I know, but, and Donnie's in that movie, um, <laughs> where the dad, who's just having trouble letting go of his daughter, is watching this movie on TV, this co- commentary, and he's watching this baby gazelle that's being stalked by a lion. And he says, what you doing, baby gazelle? Stay with your daddy. Go back to your daddy. That, that, that's what this disciple should have done. Stay with Jesus. What you doing? Y'all don't have a clue. What's going on? Why are you going out on a mission? They were clueless. We're going to find out again um, in next week's reading that they were really quite clueless. And still, Jesus sent them out into the world. And they were used powerfully by God despite their lack of knowledge and their lack of qualifications. And ladies, I'm here to tell you we have no excuse God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. And he is calling us to take the message of hope, his message of hope, to a spiritually dark and dying world. If you are waiting to be ready, you will never go. If you are waiting to be qualified, you will never go. And here's the thing. You don't have to go to Africa, although I highly recommend it, and Chelsea would too. You probably don't have to go any farther than next door. And if you need ideas about where to go, talk to me about camp. I would be thrilled to talk to you about that. Ladies, here's the thing. We live in a world that is every bit as desperate as the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. They're just afraid to express it, and they don't know how to get to Jesus. It is not our job or our duty. It is our calling and our privilege to lead them to the feet of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the times that it makes us feel good and warm and fuzzy inside. Remember that times it convicts us.
For me, Father, this is one of the convicting times. Prompt us to act, to bring hope to a world that is hopeless and help to a world that is helpless with the love and the healing and the forgiveness that only you can give. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies.